welcome. I'm Connor Beaton, and this is the Man Talk Show. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Now, joining me today is Mr. Michael Gay, and he is a therapist in private practice in Boulder, Colorado. He earned his master's in clinical mental health counseling from Naropa University with a focus in transpersonal psychology. He was a wilderness therapy guide for over six years, leading and facilitating in deep transformational work with teens, adults, and families in the mountains and high desert. He has also worked extensively in the field of addiction and recovery, and he is currently involved with a rapidly growing men's organization called Sacred Sons, working to bring men together for transformational experiences, brotherhood, healing, and empowerment. So Michael and I talk and sort of dive into a a whole slew of things on this uh, on on this uh, interview. Uh, We talk about traditional men's work. We talk about the uh, the evolution of the movement of uh, where men's work has has started in the last uh, you know sort of 40 50 years and how it has evolved over the decades uh, we talk about some of the work that a lot of men need to do and some of the systemic issues that and, and challenges that men face in society today uh, and then we talk we break down and, and talk about some of the challenges um, that most men work through within the context of doing a traditional men's weekend. So if you've ever wondered what happens at these men's weekends, uh, this will give you some good insight. Uh, And on that note, just a reminder, we do have a few spots left for the men's weekend in March uh, on the West Coast, and we will be launching uh, the men's weekend on the East Coast in the United States here soon. I know a lot of you have been asking for that. (laughs) I have a feeling that that one's going to fill up and sell out real quick uh, because my DMs and emails have been full Uh, with you guys asking me when the next one is going to be. So stay tuned on that. Um, If you're interested in that, please email me info at mantalks.ca. Let me know that you're interested in that. And uh, for the guys that are interested in the March weekend, sign up now. We are almost sold out and I would love to have you there. Uh, So that's it for the housekeeping announcements this week. So without any further delay, please welcome Michael. Great to be here, Connor. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation. We're going to dive into a whole... A uh, slew of topics, specifically around therapeutic work and uh, somatic stuff and group work. But before we dive into some of those core themes, I'm going to ask you the question that I ask all my guests, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. I think there's one that really comes to mind that's deeply personal and also led to a, my professional trajectory. In college, I was. Uh, definitely feeling the overwhelm of existential angst and finding my place in the world. And I had a close friend in college recommend the book Iron John to me, the Robert Bly book. And while I was reading that book, uh, this particular friend actually committed suicide. And so it was a huge loss for myself and for our community. And the way things turned out is that his at his memorial service, which was a four-day uh, fire ceremony, an older man in the community saw me finishing the book Iron John and asked if I wanted to come to a men's conference with Robert Bly in 2005. And that was kind of the end, the tail end of his run as being a teacher uh, at the Mentone Men's Conference and the Minnesota Men's Conferences. So I showed up for the first time in 2005 and was able to sit in on a couple of years with some of those old legendary folks like Robert Moore and Robert Bly and John Lee and Maldonado Somme. And, um, and that really set 
set the dominoes falling for me to work in wilderness as a wilderness therapy guide for about six years and go to graduate school and work in addiction and recovery and um, set me on a personal path of growth and development and kind of rewilding my life and thus undomesticating myself. And uh, so I'd say that was that was the first domino that really fell in this direction. Mm, incredible. Yeah. I mean, it's, I appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, I, th- I think that type of story or that similar type of story is unfortunately, you know, all too common uh, for those that are, that are out there. If you haven't read the book, Iron John, um, you've probably heard me talk about it on the show before. I definitely recommend going to pick it up. Um, so Michael, maybe just give me a little bit of, of context of your background. You know, it sounds like you've done some incredible things um, just in terms of honing your craft. And one of them, uh, which which I love and I'd, I'd actually like to start with, is this idea of wilderness uh, therapy. And I'm, I'm hoping that you can just give the the listeners a bit of a high-level context as to what, what that is. Yeah, so wilderness therapy, there's a couple of different ways that it manifests in the world. The way I was involved is primarily with teenagers and young adults who are really in a crisis point either because of addiction or really severe depression, uh, anxiety, eating disorders. And so they're basically come out to the woods for eight to 15 weeks. And we live nomadically together in a small group uh, with a series of guides and a therapist that comes out. Basically do really intensive personal work with them individually and with their families. And one of the extraordinary things about wilderness that, that made it work so well is partly I think that we evolved in the wild together. And living in wilderness makes us live with each other in the way that we're designed to live. And sort of all of this sort of archetypal, really old programming comes back online. And it's extraordinary how living that way restores us to relationship in ways that we couldn't have imagined. We really don't know how living in sort of the front country in the civilized world has broken our sense of community and sense of self and uh, shared purpose. And also how living outside naturally restores our sense of health and vitality and vibrance. From a therapeutic standpoint, a lot of the things that people struggle with uh, are mediated and mitigated by their personal relationships. You know, a person can, they can do or not do what they want based on their relationships, but you can't really argue with the rainstorm. You can't really argue with the cold. And there's a certain amount of resilience that's required just from living that way. And your brain doesn't really know the difference. And so living outside forces us to kind of find a certain resilience inside of ourselves and a participation in life that that becomes optional when we're in the front country. Um, and I can't underestimate the power of finding that that reconnection to resilience. Yeah, I, I love that. I love the, the way that you sort of broke that down, you know, really outlined some of the detachment that we can feel. I think the rise of social media, while it can, uh, I think we create this circumstance where we are simultaneously both more connected digitally than we've ever been, but largely less connected emotionally and, and physically than we've ever been. And, uh, and some of the sort of existential crises that people often are going through is, is somewhat tied back to that disconnection from nature, from, you know, where we've come from, from the people that are around them. And so I love this, I love this concept of, of wilderness therapy. So what made the transition away from that into the work that you're doing now? Because you've, you've done a good amount of work in uh, uh, transformational work with teens and adults and families. 
And and so was it really just this instance, um, this personal instance in your life that led you on this journey of moving more towards men's work and group work? I think I always really had the, the passion for the men's work and the group work. Wilderness definitely put that online. I think what wilderness showed me is the type of transformation and healing that can take place in group is exponentially greater than what happens individually. Um, a, a kind of a pillar of Gestalt therapy, which is my background and training, is that we're formed in relationship. Uh, we're created in relationship, and we're wired to to for that to happen that way. And so we also heal in relationship. And so doing a lot of healing work alone and isolated or just one on one um, really limits the depth uh, that that healing can can go to. Um, and so I shifted away from the wilderness stuff a little bit more into front country. I still do somewhat of a hybrid of that. Um, it's sort of a mix of things I learned through wilderness um, as well as Gestalt. And that's sort of just taken on its own shape into working in context of experiential weekends and also uh, men's convergences and conferences. Um, and that's just sort of naturally the place that men are willing to go right now and people are willing to go. Um, but I do do some backcountry work. If, if there's families or individuals that want to do backcountry work, we create sort of a tailor-made hybrid program and and go out there and engage in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wonderful. Can you maybe just say a little bit more about the, you know, the the rise of men's work and and just from your perspective, why you feel like it is is coming, um, making sort of a, a resurgence? I know in the Robert Bly era, that really was the first first sort of like resurgence of men's work and and the conversations around uh, you know men's development and men's roles in, in society and culture. And just from the work that you've done, why do you see this big resurgence happening right now? You know, I, it's interesting. I, I couldn't track it as well as other people who went through that first wave. But I have an uncle who was really involved in those early men's conferences with Robert Bly. And one of the things I've gleaned from things he said is it kind of faded out and sort of fizzled and, and evaporated. And if we're tracking like why that happened, why did it not stay full force? Why did it not keep building momentum? Uh, from what I gather, men just didn't get together. You know, they would see each other at these conferences. They would have powerful experiences. Some of them would get together, but by and large people, you know, they wouldn't get together in that kind of intentional deep way more than once a year, just at the conference. And so it, it just lost steam. Um, so in part, I think the work now to keep it going is that we get together outside of these experiential deep dives with each other. But also I think that that culture and society is demanding it. I think that the earth is demanding it. I think that there's a lot of shadow that needs to be worked through in the history of masculinity and patriarchy and power dynamics and um, emotional intelligence and just the ability to be in relationship. You know, that's sort of my lens that I've come to is the ability to be in relationship with ourself, with each other, uh, with the planet, uh, with the cosmos. And so I think that we're really being invited and called into a deeper sense, a more integrated and refined sense of relationship and and that's what the, this work is all about. It's an answer to that call to a to deepening relationship. Mm. Yeah, I I love that perspective. And it, it seems like there is a large call for community, you know, amongst men. And just uh, you know, I, I'm not too sure. I think some of it can be attributed to this idea of the fatherless homes or the fatherless generations. And I think the more men's work that I've done is that there's a lot of um, healing that needs to be taking place amongst the masculine, right? With within ourselves, whether that's healing, 
within uh, the relationship that we have to our father or to our brothers or to the male role models in our life, the coaches, the you know guys that we went to school with, et cetera, there, there seems to be this call to sort of reshape and redesign and rewire the relationships that we have with other men in our life. And so I guess I'm going to kind of use that to just pivot into what are some of the challenges that you see a lot of men experiencing uh, in the work that you're doing with them? I don't know. It seems like masculinity and, and the model of it has been sort of like a potted plant. You know, there's only so far that the roots have been able to go. And that's really prevented like the, the tree from growing into its fullness. Um, and so I think what I do see is kind of expanding the bounds of like where masculinity is allowed to go. What does deep masculine feeling look like? What does deep connection and brotherhood look like? How is community built over time? Um, those kinds of things haven't really happened that much for whatever reason. And I think you see this in archetypal initiation rites that there's something about men that requires a bit more cooking. Women do an extraordinary job of getting together and exchanging with depth and um, can nourish these quadrants of life. But men, for some reason, struggle. And so we need a little bit more initiation rites, a little bit more imposed processes of refinement to really help us get cooked all the way so that we can really give back to the communities and relationships we're in. Um, so I see a lot of themes that come up in this group work is an intense amount of loneliness and isolation, uh, an intense amount of grief and heaviness being held, an intense amount of just uh, powerlessness, um, like a frenetic sense of like not knowing what to do or where to go, difficulty finding purpose. Um, I think just the consequences of being cut off from community and from mentors and from having sort of a path uh, that helps cook us into more full versions of ourselves. So I see like the developmentally arrested man, I guess, the lonely man, the isolated man, uh, the intensely grieving alone man. Um, that's often who I see come. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. And, you know, I think one of the things that, that I see is that men seem to come into this work often due to certain access points and uh, and invitations. And I've, I've noticed that traditionally, a lot of the men that seem to come out to these men's weekends are experiencing some form of transition. It's almost like the hero's journey is, is playing out in their life. You know, there's been a call to change, a call to action in some capacity. And, you know, they're, they're sort of going into the, the cave in some way. And there's some transition either in a relationship or a career or in a health or in, in a mental construct that they are battling with and they're not too sure how to sort of cross the finish line or they have been stuck in the cage in the cave for a very long time or in a cage uh, for a very long time and are looking for a means to escape that so with that in mind why do you feel like some of the the traditional men's work that is being done today that utilizes, you know, somatic work, body work, group work. Why do you feel like these platforms of um, of growth, of transformation, of therapy are are so important when it comes to helping to heal the masculine, helping to grow and develop men? I, you know, I think we could we could debate and discuss how it happened or why it happens, but you know, my view personally and what I see professionally is that masculinity and men often reside in their head and in their intellect. And mm. part of the way I think that humans are wired is that just a lot of 
life force, a lot of archetypal energy is contained in other areas. And, and the mind is only so limited to touch that and unlock that. And so there's a way that men have really been cut off from these sources of vitality and aliveness and power and just ability to, to give, um, to be life giving. And, and so I think doing the body work and the somatic work is something that, that's sort of a paradigm shift on, on unlocking those untapped archetypal energies, um, and really restoring vitality that hasn't been there. And the thing about it is that, you know, you don't, you don't really have to understand, you know, get into a group that's doing this work, put a dude in the middle and get him to start breathing and things just naturally start coming. You know, we're not making them feel certain things. The intensity of the feeling and emotion is already in there. It's just a matter of being in, in relationship with it or not. And so I guess I see it as like an expansion of, of the, our sources of vitality. We've really been stacked up on this one quadrant of like intellectual understanding and self-awareness um, and cognitive maps and, and our, our bodies and the emotional body have been completely neglected. And so I think people are rediscovering the amount of vitality that's there and the amount of wisdom that's there. You know, the mind can really get lost. I mean, there's people that have sharp compasses intellectually, but each individual, sharp mind or not, their body is an extraordinary compass for what's true and and how to mm. unlock vitality that's, that's locked in there. Yeah, I think there's a, uh, I mean, there's a great book called The Body Keeps the Score. And if I'm, I'm, I might botch the quote, but it's, yeah, the guy basically um, from Bessel van der Kolk, and he, I think in the book, he says something along the lines of like neuroscience research has shown us that the only way we can change the way that we feel is by becoming aware of our inner experience and learning to befriend what's going on inside of us. And what I've witnessed a lot in the work that I've done with men, and I'm curious to see and hear if you've seen this, is that because many guys in their earlier years have been taught to over-index the rational mind, they they often are living in their heads. You know, they're just living in their thoughts and and sort of trapped by the rational mind and very disconnected. You know, they're sort of like living from the neck up and they're missing the rest of their body, you know, unless they are sexually aroused and they have a heart on and they, you know, want to want to go out and have sex. And, and in which case their attention is drawn to another part, but but they sort of oscillate between those two and are missing this large subset of what's happening in between there. And I'm curious for you, when it comes to befriending what's going on inside of us, where do men actually start? Like, how do they start to get into this process of understanding what's happening within their inner experience? I'm, I think that, you know, as we enter into that body world, um, a lot of people are going to look for the how-to's. And so I'm a little bit careful of letting the mind still control the realm. And so mm-hmm. I think what I would say is, you know, to piggyback on what you said about Bessel van der Kolk, a lot of the traumas, a lot of the things that people get stuck with and that stifle their vitality, their aliveness, their ability to connect uh, with themselves and other people in life, they're, you know, if we're going to get sciencey in it, like they're held in parts of the brain that are not accessible by language. So we have to come up with non-cognitive and nonverbal approaches to putting this stuff back online and reconnecting. So I guess the first stage is finding an approach that's a jumping off point where we, where the mind can't really hang anymore. It, it can't swim in these waters. Its vessel is not made to navigate them. It's a bit, you know, I'll use the judgment deeper. And so uh, an example would be doing this group work, get into uh, a group 
that is trying to go deep and dive deep and a lot of nonverbal stuff, a lot of body stuff is going to come up naturally on its own. You don't have to do anything. You just have to create the environment that calls it out. It's there and it wants to come out and there's not a lot of um, technique involved other than setting up like the proper spaces that invite it online and really give it the freedom uh, and the lack of constraint um, with ideas about, you know, this, your anger is supposed to move this way and your grief is supposed to move that way. I mean, the body really knows. And so what we're doing in these weekends of group work is uh, each person gets a chance to kind of be in the middle, all the focus on them. And the stuff just naturally comes. That's why I think we're wired for this stuff to happen. I think we're wired for this kind of deep, you know, I've, I've been calling it like a ritual connection. Uh, because when you create this intentional uh, constellation of group focused on one person, these deep things naturally come up. There's not a lot of have things you have to do. You just create the conditions and they arrive. So that's kind of what I would say is find your way to a group that's doing this stuff and kind of understands the wisdom of group and, and what happens in those spaces. Mm. Do you feel like there's a, like a lineage of, of that or, or a history or tradition of that group processing? Because I, I think what uh, I've always been interested about is, is, you know, how that process unfolds so naturally. Cause I, I think you're right. Like I've seen that as well in the group work that I facilitated, whether it's at the men's weekends or when we're working, when my wife and I are working with couples is that it does flow organically. You know, you get someone in, in the middle of a circle or in, in a group of whatever, 15, 20, 30 people. And all of a sudden, what has been stuck there, what they haven't been able to bring forward emotionally, cognitively, spiritually, physically, et cetera, all of a sudden has, it's almost like it has permission because there are people right. there to witness it. And right. I'm curious if, 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 you know, you're able to sort of expand on that. As far as like lineage goes, you know, I think I don't have a lot of people that I've worked with that pieced the full group thing together. I think there probably are people that have, mm. but as far as my own arrival there, it was sort of a mix of learning what I learned in wilderness therapy. And then I trained at the Gestalt Institute of the Rockies with uh, Dewey Freeman and Joan Rieger and Stephanie Joseph for about four years and then continued training at the Gestalt Equine Institute. And, and because of who Dewey is and who Joan is and Steph is, they really integrate a lot of bioenergetic stuff, a lot of body-based things. So a lot of things from Alexander Lowen and John Paracas, um, the bioenergetics and coenergetics. And I've also been really influenced by Jeff Brown, who's an extraordinary author up in Canada. So all of the nexus of those things coming together uh, and, and getting to play with it at, at these Sacred Sons events have really, uh, it, the form has shown itself uh, by creating you know these constellations of men. But I can't track an exact lineage of like, these are the people doing it. I do know the early days of Gestalt that people did, you know, at Esalen do quite a bit of group work together in that way. Um, and John Paracas was doing that with Core Energetics. And they're definitely touching on those things as well. Yeah, awesome. And what would you, what would you say are some of the core components of, because I think oftentimes what I've noticed is that people have natural speculation about doing group work. And it does seem yeah. to become uh, becoming more mainstream with programs like the Hoffman Institute and you know, stuff like what we're doing with man talks and, and sacred, you know, the sacred sons and, and whatnot. And so just, I think, can you maybe outline a little bit for the listener, 
what traditionally happens from an experiential standpoint, less of a logical standpoint, but an experiential standpoint, uh, when someone is is going through group work. Yeah. And so one of the ways that I primarily work is I'll kind of give a little bit of background to the group before we begin on uh, movement of emotion in the body and um, emotional armoring and and really trusting the body and and following the sensations um, and, and giving up on the need to have words. Maybe they're there and they support the process and maybe they detract. You know, they'll be able to tell if the words support the process because they increase the sensation. Um, they'll know if they detract because it takes away from the amount of energy and sensation. But basically what it looks like is, you know, we'll, we'll have a group of 15 folks or so um, and one or two support facilitators and I'll invite um, a man into the middle who, who has energy up for them. And so they come out into the middle and we all kind of gather around and tune in to if the energy is, is up or down. And I use the word energy really loosely and up or down loosely, you know, is it agitated? Might it be anger? Could it be rage? Could it be just anxiety or is it grief? Is it heaviness? Is it sadness? Is it fear? And so the whole group will stand up. If the energy's up, the whole group will sit down if it's down. And I basically just use some somatic approaches and techniques to get people to breathe and build the energy just sort of naturally builds. A little background piece is is I think there's something about the the dynamic of the group uh, nervous system. You know, I think as if you think of us as children, a parent can really regulate a child. Like their their nervous system can regulate a child's nervous system. There's a certain proportionate difference in power and size. You know, some of your parents might beg to differ, you know, when your child's really popping off. But um, a parent's inner nervous system can really regulate a child's. When we're adult, you know, adult to adult, it's not the same uh, difference of size. And it's harder for one person to regulate another person. But when you have 15 people focused on one person, that recreates that sort of huge uh, nervous system to regulate one person. And so I think that's what kind of calls that stuff out and things just naturally start to move. You know, a person's whole working might not be any words. They might just have a lot of tears. Um, they might have a lot of sobs. They might have, you know, they might want to be held down by 15 dudes and just, you know, push and fight against that. And and we don't try to understand it as much. You know, the person who's experiencing might understand it and they might not, they might not. If they do, it usually comes after. But it's really working non-verbally with emotion and sensation and energy and kind of unkinking the hose uh, to what's been stopping that flow and letting the grief come, letting the anger come, letting the sadness come, letting the heaviness affect the body um, and using the group to support. It's a pretty hands-on process. Um, so there often is a lot of like human-to-human contact um, involved. Yeah, I appreciate that analogy and just a description because I think you know, one of the things that you, when I've had guys apply to come to the weekend and they're sort of trying to source out or suss out, you know, whether they should, whether it's for them or not. And, you know, I think we as men often uh, approach things from like a very analytical standpoint. And so it's like, well, what's the ROI going to be? You know, like what's the return on investment of, of me coming out yeah. and doing this? And I, I think one of the things that has landed for a lot of the guys is like, look, this is, this is going to support you in sort of getting through the emotional constipation that you may have been feeling in your life. And great way to put it. I have been continually surprised 
with how many men are feeling a sense of stuckness, either in their anger or in a sense of sadness or, you know, with their depression or their anxiety or grief of something that's happened that they haven't been able to move through or process, you know, year, like things that have been years and years old that have been dormant, residing in their body, um, blocking sort of a natural flow of them being able to move through life. And it really is one of those things that is is challenging to describe uh, to people. So I, I appreciate the way that you sort of outlined it here. Can you give a little bit of a, a sense of, you mentioned studying Gestalt work, and uh, I think that's a, it's a huge part of the work that I do as well. But I think for the listeners, um, they might not have a context for what Gestalt work, Gestalt therapy is all about. So can you unpack some of, some of those uh, co- core components from Gestalt therapy for us? Yeah, totally. And it'll piggyback off what you just said about the mind not really understanding before it begins. Um, Fritz Perls, uh, kind of one of the founders of Gestalt, said, you know, get lose your mind and come to your senses. And so what Gestalt really is, it's really different depending on the people you learn it from. In this school, it's taken different, you know, it's branched out and different sub-personalities have changed it and evolved it and moved it. But By and large, a fundamental principle, there's a couple of them. One is uh, we don't really pathologize in Gestalt. Um, We also really understand that the self is formed in relationships. So, you know, a definition of Gestalt might be the exploration in and of relationship while in relationship. So it really emphasizes the relational nature of human beings and our growth and our healing. And another final principle is that you have to experience and you have to express that someone who can't really fully experience the energy of emotion and depth of feeling and sensation, um, that, that that's a sign, an indicator of sort of a lack of health. That's a, a, a limit, a block put on their vitality. And, and one way to restore that is really learning to experience and express. Um, and so it's a series of techniques, body-based and otherwise, to really help people be more experiential. Instead of talking about yourself about your life, about your story, you know, that doesn't mobilize any of the really deep energy where all this stuff is, is being held up. Um, I'm not, not to say it can't help. Um, I do think perspective helps. Um, but, but exploring in ways that really put a lot of sensation and feeling online, uh, tend to do a lot more, um, in a shorter period of time and just operate on a, a different level of depth than just talk therapy or, um, narrative therapy. So this is about connecting, almost like connecting the nonverbal parts of us with a verbal expression. Or how would you how would you reframe that? Sometimes it can be verbal. It's 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 more of just about connecting to the the energy and the feeling and the vitality, and that might come out as words and it might not. Um, so Gestalt has like a, a whole host of interventions and techniques to help people connect and move the nonverbal, pure, energetic components. Um, and then another set of tools to integrate when there is words and when there are things that need to be said and spoken and done in relationship to another human being where, where words carry, uh, the energy. And so it's, it's just a bit more experiential in nature and a bit more expressive in nature, expressive in the true sense of the word that like the energy has to come through whatever it is. It's, it's not, the energy is there. So it might be words, but it's words plus energy. It might be physical movement, but it's physical movement plus like feeling and sensation and energy. So it's it's basically just an approach that says, 
you know, if you don't have sensation, you don't have anything. So it's that's sort of its philosophical underpinning. Hmm. Um, you got to learn to mobilize the sensation. And, and for a lot of folks out there, you know, feeling and sensation are tricky words. They mean a lot of different things to different folks. So that's why I use words like energy and, and vitality instead. Yeah. What's, <laughs> I was going to say, like, what's the allure of, of moving away from the, the physical sensations? Because I, I feel like many of us are taught from a very young age to, to sort of move away from, quote unquote, you know, bad feelings, right? Whether yeah. anger is villainized or uh, shame is sort of ostracized out of our, our personality, we wrong ourselves for experiencing that. Um, like, why is that? Why is that that we are are taught that? What, I, mean, I mean, I guess it's kind of a speculative question, but I, I would love for you to, to, to give, uh, you know, your, your best answer. And then, and then how do we how do we start to trust these sensations, these experiences, these feelings within us? Because I think for many people, there is, again, there's an intellectualization of why we should rationally bother to even do that. Um, so right. I would love to just move the conversation in that direction if we can. Sure. I'll, I'll play a little bit in the speculative ground. Um, you know, I, I think it had, I have a sense that it had a little bit of something to do with uh, like the religious climate of the West. Um, other cultures around the world are still quite expressive and don't lock down the bodily or the, the sensation or the feeling as much. But I think there's something to be said about the religious climate. Um, so for whatever the whys, you know, what we ended up with is a culture that doesn't really have uh, the cultural wisdom or the, the human techniques. And, you know, we call them techniques now because we're like thinking about it objectively, but um, having parades and celebration and music and concert and dance and you know, all of those things are subtle ways that we moved this energy in the past without having to do it fully intentionally. It just happened, you know, like there's something in us that wants to dance, that wants to make music, that wants to sing, that wants to move, that wants to participate in something bigger and collective. And for whatever reason, we kind of have shut those things down. And And I could speculate a little bit why, um, but a part of, you know, if I'm going to pull the Gestalt card, we're less interested in why. And we're more interested in like where the energy is or isn't. Um, and so if I'm speaking to someone who's, you know, a little suspicious or hesitant about diving in, I think you just have to try it and see, you know, I'm someone who drank the Kool-Aid. Like I worked in wilderness therapy for, you know, 1200 field days, roughly, you know, these are really long days out in the woods working with teens and young adults. And I saw a lot of therapists working with kids and, and not a lot things moved, but then I finally met a, a handful of therapists that were just some kind of a wizard. And I was like, what are you doing? Like, how are you getting a teenage boy to drop into their primary emotional experience every single conversation? And he's like, well, you know, Gaston Sue, the Rockies, you know, this is where I learned and these experiential approaches. And, and I was just sold because I experienced it myself. And so I think you kind of have to just explore and choose if you're stuck you're in a place where you get to explore different options for getting unstuck. And I propose to the listeners and to the people out there that feel stuck or that want to try something that there's an immense amount of vitality and aliveness living in the physical body, the emotional body, and that these are ways to put that stuff back online. And it's not something you have to understand. Like you will be able to feel it from day one. It doesn't take philosophical buy-in. Like you have, you leave the weekend more vibrant, more alive, 
more deep feeling, more connected. And that's just the case. And it's been the case with thousands of people that I've seen over the years. And I don't know, I think I just drank the Kool-Aid. So I think if you're in a stuck place, jump in and see, you'll find out pretty quickly whether it's the real deal or not. Mm, Yeah, I love that. And I'm curious from your perspective, you know, a lot of a a lot of men's work out there will will get men into a a close understanding uh, and and a better understanding of their relationship to uh, anger specifically. And that seems to be a big access point for a lot of men. And I'm hoping that maybe you can shed some light on, on what, what that relationship is and, and why it's important for men to be able to start to address that relationship with anger. Oh man, anger is a tricky one. You know, it's, it's, it has a huge shadow. And so a lot of people don't want to touch it. You know, they feel like I get involved with that, then all the bad things I've seen happen with it are going to happen to me in my life and in my relationships. And so it becomes a really untouched energy. And for me, it's like all archetypal energies, you know, it has a shadow, it has a way that it's, uh, it, it takes away from life. Um, but man, there's a quote from Iron John that I, that really sticks with me where he talks about, you know, nice men or nice people that, that nice men are life preserving, but they're not life giving. They're life preserving, but they're not life giving. And that there's a certain quality of fierceness. Uh, that's required to truly be generative. Um, there's a certain willingness to engage with and be in contact with, you know, creating and holding boundaries with fighting for what you think is important. And fighting doesn't have to look like aggression. Uh, it can, uh, but it's 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 resisting something that's trying to annihilate you or annihilate what you care about. Um, there's a need to pick up that kind of archetypal energy if you're really going to build something. Um, so uh, people, people really underestimate the immense power and creativity and generativity that's in anger um, to, to create boundaries, to create the kind of relationship you want, to um, really make sure needs get met, to, uh, to really express fully. And, um, and so, you know, that's why we do this work is that I think people have a wisdom that, man, if I touch that stuff, it's going to come out sideways. And you're probably right. It probably will. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a sword. It's a tool. And like any weapon or any tool, it can be dangerous. And so it takes a period of learning to wield it with skill. Um, and so these types of group work and therapy work and what men's work, whatever it may be, uh, they're basically helping people hone the skill and learn uh, how to hold the tool of anger in a way that's life-giving instead of life-taking. Um, because if you just pick it up, it's probably going to come from that really primal archetypal place, and it really probably will come out sideways. Um, so I think just like anything, you know, it's it's a skill that requires a learning process. And where are the safe places to learn? And who are the good teachers to learn from? Who's really got integrated ways, powerful ways of understanding how to pick up that energy to make sure that we don't hurt ourselves or our relationships. And so I think people, yeah, really underestimate the importance of it because it really is about protecting what you care about. It really is about making sure what you care about can grow and thrive, um, be that your own needs or the needs of those that you care about or the planet. So I think that's what I'd have to say about anger. Yeah, I love it. I love it. There's a great poet and philosopher named David White, and he says, anger is the deepest form of compassion. And I, yeah. I, I think that that can, can be true, 
You know, it can be true so long as we have learned how to interact with that part of ourself. Otherwise, you know, like you said, it can have a, a hugely immense shadow. I think what I've noticed for uh, not all men, but for a lot of men is that anger can be an access point to some of those locked up emotions like grief, like sadness, you know, like the shame that they felt about whatever has transpired in their life and taken place. Um, I'm curious to get your sense on how this group work is uh, is beneficial for things like trauma and healing through a, a sense of trauma or or if that's something that you approach. Yeah, it's definitely something I approach and I feel like it's maybe one of the best tools we have for working with trauma. It'll be a little bit of an echo of what I said before about being formed in relationship and healing in a relationship. And a lot of the things, you know, trauma is, like Bessel van der Kolk says, is stored in the brain in areas that is not touched by language. So we have to find nonverbal ways. Those ways often involve touch. They often involve movement. They often involve breath. They, they often, you know, require a, a type of group holding because it's big energy, uh, stuff that gets woven in with trauma. And, and a lot of times they don't have a home, you know, in someone's spiritual practice, they don't have a home in their partnership, in their therapy relationship. There's only a so, so big that energy can get in those settings. And in the group setting, that energy can be immense. Um, and it can be expressed and it can be moved through and it can be held skillfully. So I definitely do advocate working with trauma uh, in an informed, um, consensual way in, in the group model. But I think it's one of, you know, a lot of trauma and is, is also like attachment work. You know, it's, it's rebuilding our ability to stay in connection with ourselves and with other people. Um, and, you know, we have like real ruptures to that capacity, real ruptures to our faith in being connected and what happens when we're connected to life or to ourselves or to others. Um, and that group work is, is mm. completely a, a beautiful and elegant invitation to relearn relationship and to really get supported and held and respected and seen uh, in the ways that helps trauma move. Um, because you're, you're right immediately mm. in the realm of the verbal when you're working with trauma. Yeah. One of the, one of the things, just to piggyback off what you're saying, one of the things that I will sometimes say at the very beginning of a group weekend is Carl Jung said the first step of any therapeutic process is confession. And that sometimes it's not a verbal confession that we need to make, but an emotional one, an experiential one. And yeah. I think what you're really describing is, is, is at the core and the essence for me of group work, really exceptional, extraordinary group work is like there is an emotional confession that happens to allow other people to see the parts of ourselves that we would normally keep buried from our loved ones and even from ourselves. And there is a form of freedom that of release that can come out of that space a letting go they can come out of that space of forgiveness and so i i really love what you're saying here and i feel like there's so much for us to dive into i wanted to just double back on uh you know you've you've touched on and talked about um you know these these energetic archetypes that we all experience and i'm wondering if you can just maybe shed some light on that concept for the listener yeah i think i'm i'm pretty informed by uh some of that the Jungian approach to archetypal energies that there are really powerful um, sort of schemas and patterns of 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 I don't 
you know, I really don't know. The language sort of starts to run out a little bit, but uh, these archetypal energies, what that means is that there are certain um, flows and organizations of energy that exist in the world, uh, and we can connect to them as human beings. You know, we talk about in the masculine, the most talked about ones are the warrior, the lover, the magician, and the king. Um, and they're, they all have different roles. Um, they embody different qualities of life and allow certain very powerful um, energies to run through them. And so uh, the idea of saying that they're archetypal is that they're bigger than human. They're, they're simultaneously human and more than human. And so our relationship to them, we need, we need connection to them because they're life-giving for sure. Um, but they can also burn us up and eat us up. Um, and so they're sort of cultural wisdom about how to bring those those powerful uh, energies into a human life without burning them up or their community up. Um, and and that's kind of the work of initiation is is creating a person capable of holding them. But it's a little bit hard to describe maybe for someone who's not super familiar, but you know, like a warrior, for example, like there's totally the shadow version and there's totally the life-giving version. And to really embody that in your life requires like an amount of discipline and becoming and learning and integrating um, how to to be incredibly present and ca- incredibly capable of holding boundaries and defending, um, incredibly capable of being of service and focused and getting things done. Um, and, and that those types of qualities, like that is the archetypal energy entering into an individual personality. Um, and they, they can be really well embodied in certain folks and they can be, you know, kind of fragmented and broken, um, or they can be just not present at all. And so like our task is to learn how to truly really bring them in and make a, them a part of our lives so that we can be life giving and, uh, in relationship in a powerful way, a full human way. Mm. I love that. I love that. Uh, I, I like the definition too of just being able to describe and 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 tie in some of those components of what the archetypes are, or or at least the purpose that those archetypes can serve. Um, I did a, a four part mini series, mini episodes on King, Warrior, Lover, Magician. Uh, so for anyone that's out there listening, if you want to double back and dive into those, they are they are in the show. Um, and I feel like I feel like I could have you back on the show, Michael, and we could do like a a whole segment on talking about Jungian archetypes and some of these, uh, some of these other archetypes. Would you be open to that? I'd absolutely be open to that. Love to be back. Wonderful, awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today on the Man Talk Show, and for everyone that's out there listening, definitely uh, check out some of Michael's work and the work that he's doing with Sacred Sons. Uh, don't forget to share this episode if you found this useful and you know someone that would love to dive into this topic that would like to learn more. Uh, about the topics that we discussed in this episode. Don't forget to share uh, that just with one person or with more. Uh, Don't forget to tag me when you share it on Instagram or whatever platform uh, you share it on. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. 